Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Is Storytelling Bad for Science? First, I want to acknowledge that we're meeting on Aboriginal land. Aboriginal people have told stories in this place for thousands of years in languages like Darug, spoken to the west of where we are now, and Eora, spoken towards the east. Welcome to the University of Sydney. My name is Nick Anfield. I'm director of Shark, uh, head of the Post-Truth Initiative, and I'm a professor of linguistics here at Sydney. Our distinguished panel tonight features two scientists and two artists to ask whether and if so how story and science can mix. The Hollywood screenwriter John Colley practised as a medical doctor before becoming a novelist and professional screenwriter with credits including Happy Feet and Master and Commander. The galactic archaeologist Geraint Lewis heads gravitational astrophysics at this university and works on dark energy and galactic cannibalism, among much else. The theatre maker, Alana Valentine's plays include Parramatta Girls, which is on the New South Wales high school syllabus, and Letters to Lindy. She currently walks among the scientists as playwright-in-residence here at the Charles Perkins Centre. And the molecular geneticist, Jenny Byrne, is a child cancer researcher at Sydney and is world-renowned for her work exposing fraudulent scientific publications. She was one of Nature magazine's top 10 people who matter in the world in 2017. (laughs) So science uh, can be hard to do, can be hard to explain, and there's a constant discussion around how we can best get our ideas and our findings across. Uh, And one answer is that we should be using narrative and storytelling. So there are many blogs and papers arguing this. One recently was in Nature Journal arguing that scientists should use, quote, the age-old custom of telling a story. Why? Because narrative helps audiences focus their attention, gets them engaged, makes them more likely to remember what you've said. One question that we'll ask tonight is, what is storytelling anyway? A story might be a highly crafted work by an expert, like John or Alana, or it might be an off-the-cuff narrative by an ordinary person, like when I tell you about an incident that happened on the bus this morning. But one thing that stories have in common is that they hold people's attention, they give them something to react to, something to think about, something to take away uh, and perhaps pass on to others. Well, some people in science not a small number, uh, suggests that narrative actually isn't such a good idea. There was a response to that article in Nature uh, saying, well, hold on a minute, narrative can contradict certain key principles of scientific work. Uh, One idea being scientists shouldn't be aiming for a particular result. We should be disinterested. We should not be emotionally invested uh, in what comes out, but rather... Uh, stay neutral. We shouldn't give the impression that a case is closed. Science is a permanently unfinished business. Uh, And we shouldn't aim to persuade, we should only aim to inform. So there are those who are saying, uh, let's be careful with the idea of storytelling. So there are two sides to the story and that's why we're asking tonight, is storytelling bad for science? 
Uh, so just a word on the format tonight. Uh, the five of us will each make a quick pitch for our point of view on this, stake out a few positions on the topic, uh, and uh, offer some of our experience and ideas. And then we will open up for a little bit of panel discussion before opening up to audience uh, contributions. So we really want uh, you all to make a contribution and bring your questions uh, to the panel so that we can discuss them. Uh, but note, uh, we want to keep it fast moving, so please um, prepare your questions, but um, short and to the point questions only. Uh, so no stories from the audience, please. <laughs> All right, so um, I, will, uh, I will go first, and I want to start with a story about a science story. So the story I want to talk about was written um, and published in 1975 in an edition of Scientific American uh, magazine. You can see it here on the screen in a regular maths column uh, written by Martin Gardner. And I also want to talk about uh, somebody who read this story, uh, and that's Marjorie Rice, who you can see here on the screen. Marjorie Rice was a stay-at-home mum. She uh, had a high school education. She hadn't uh, studied beyond high school. She lived in San Diego with her husband and five kids. And she had bought a subscription to Scientific American for uh, one of her sons. And one day she sat down uh, and read that story. The story was about mathematicians trying to figure out which polygons could tile the plane. So what does it mean for a polygon to tile the plane where you are looking at a, um, an example? Um, so the simple idea here is that you've got a single type of polygon uh, that interlocks perfectly to cover the entire surface with no gaps and no overlaps, just like tiles on your bathroom floor. Uh, and in that story, it described how early in the 20th century, mathematicians had figured out certain things about how polygons uh, worked in terms of the way they tile. Triangles would always tile the plane. Quadrilaterals would always tile the plane. Things with more than six sides couldn't tile the plane. Um, hexagons were understood to a certain extent, and there was a special interest in pentagons. So um, in 1918, exactly 100 years ago, a mathematician by the name of Carl Reinhardt discovered five types of tiling pentagon. Um, so here we can see the five that Carl Reinhardt discovered, and um, they're tessellating, they're tiling, as you can see here. Uh, he suggested um, that this was the complete set, that he had discovered the five types. But as the story described, uh, he had not um, actually given a proof of this. So some people, while many people accepted these were the five types, certain people became interested in trying to uh, figure out the problem further. So there was a physicist by the name of Richard Kirshner who got intrigued by this problem and couldn't let it go. Later he said that he wrestled with this problem for 35 years, quote, for reasons that I would have difficulty explaining. <laughs> uh, in the end, uh, his work paid off and he discovered three more types of tiling pentagon. You can see them here. And he thought for sure the list was now complete. And in that story that Marjorie Rice read, in fact, that's what was suggested. But it was noted there that he, had not, he hadn't actually offered a proof that these were the only ones that could be found. So picture Marjorie Rice sitting in her 1970s San Diego home. In an interview later, she described the moment. She said, my, that must be wonderful that someone could discover these things which no one had seen before, these beautiful patterns. So she sat down with a pencil and paper. She had no training in maths, 
And in a sense, this had a certain upside. She wasn't constrained by tradition. She literally invented her own notation. And by now, you can guess what happened. She discovered three new types of tiling pentagon. So in doing so, she had equaled uh, Kirshner's achievement, and she had reopened this puzzle in mathematics. Uh, and over the next 40 years, four more pentagons were found, uh, one each by different people or teams. Uh, and finally, the last one was discovered just three years ago, uh, and soon afterwards, uh, a team of computer scientists uh, showed that this is now the complete set. So we now know that there are 15, and only 15, of these uh, tiling pentagons. So that story in Scientific American succeeded gloriously. Just by reading that story, Marjorie Rice was able to understand the problem, she was inspired to work on solving it, and she eventually made a real breakthrough. So major kudos to the author of the story, Martin Gardner. Well, why did that story stick so well? Stories are made out of language, and language works like a kind of remote control on people's minds. Stories that work, work because they're well-designed for the brain. This means that if we're going to inform people and motivate them, we have to anticipate how those people are going to process what it is that we give them. A narrative has evolved the features that it has because these are the features that get people to pay attention to something, to engage with it, to be affected by it, and to react accordingly, including passing the message on. So for me, storytelling is an instrument for maximizing the uptake of ideas and getting them to be faithfully copied and taken up in the, po in the population. And that faithful copying of information is what we need for progress in science. After all, it's cumulative. We need, we need ideas to stick. So the simple reason why I think that scientists need to learn the basic tools of narrative is that those tools work in an instrumental sense in achieving the goals of communication. So when Marjorie Rice read the story of the search for tiling pentagons, that story exploited her cognitive biases to grab her attention, and then when it had her attention, to exploit it to implant a bit of knowledge and a bit of wonder. And so that's why I think storytelling is good for science. Thank you. So now uh, let me hand the floor to the Hollywood screenwriter, John Colley, who's going to ask what is a story anyway. So, yeah, thanks very much, Nick. I, um, I come at this from two angles because, as Nick said, I started off um, as a doctor and then became a medical journalist and then finally ended up as a screenwriter. Um, when I was a doctor, I had an experience in a lecture theatre about the same size as this in Edinburgh where I was studying, where um, we would normally come for grand rounds where a patient would be presented and the doctors would give, the doctors who were looking after them would give a kind of a, a learned analysis of what they'd come in with, what their blood results were, how the diagnosis was reached, and how they treated them. On one occasion, a rather charismatic young uh, hospital registrar came in, and instead of presenting a sheet of figures, he said, imagine the scene. You're lying in bed in the middle of the night, and suddenly you have a feeling that someone is driving a wooden stake through the middle of your chest. We're all, as medical students, sitting forward in our seats. And he went on to explain the subjective feeling of having a dissecting aortic aneurysm. He then added in all the facts and figures about how they'd arrived at this diagnosis, what the x-rays looked like, what the treatment was. But in terms of getting us 
psychologically and emotionally arrested with that idea, with the idea of that disease. This was just a brilliant technique, and that must have stayed with me long afterwards, because then when I was writing articles for The Observer, I began to think of every medical condition in terms of what, could, what story could you tell about it? How could you make this arresting to a member of the general public, rather than saying, oh, you must eat less fat, or you must, eat, you, know, you must exercise more, rather than saying that kind of stuff, how can you tell a story that will kind of embed these ideas emotionally in the people we're addressing? You learn by emotion. And you also, as Nick said, narrative is just an amazing way of kind of cramming a lot of facts into people's heads if they're sufficiently primed for it. And as evidence of that, you just need to look at the incredible success of Harry Potter. So 50% of, uh, sort of teenagers worldwide could tell you the contents of seven hefty tomes of Harry Potter um, with a lot of detailed information in there. If you've ever tried to get a kid to read just a science book that thick, you'll know what an achievement that is. Um, this is clearly a method for embedding information. And as Nick said again, uh, as a screenwriter, one then starts to analyze what are good stories, what are bad stories. And in fact, film studios have spent a lot of time uh, trying to work out what is the proper structure of a story to get maximum attention. And this story, actually, the one about the tiles, reminds me, I don't know how many people have seen The Man Who Knew Infinity, but that's exactly the same tale of a kind of a, 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 an innocent from abroad, an Indian mathematician called Ramanujan, who came to Cambridge University, struck up a friendship with the doyen of mathematics at the time, who was called Hardy. And uh, together, they came up with a, a whole lot of mathematical theories which had not been available to the strict mathematical theorists, but which Ramanujan was able to conjure in some kind of mystical way. Um, so those kinds of stories, that's probably why this story about the tiles is so sticky, because it kind of, it, it's embedded in it is the theme of, like, everyone can do everything, you know? The truth is, of course, that we can't all do everything. There's a structure to everything. There's a structure to stories. And the structure is this. It's actually best expressed by the metaphor of a cat up a tree. So a story has three acts. First act, second act, third act. And this applies to um, everything from a joke to a, sort of a scientific article, to a play, to a film, to a series of novels. There has to be a problem. There have to be a series of complications. And, and there has to be a resolution. So far, so obvious. One way of picturing how you then construct a story um, is to think of it as a tree. A tree is essentially a fractal structure. There's a, there's a base, there's a beginning, there's branches, and there's the tips of branches, which is the end. And the, the, it's, when I say it's a fractal structure, that structure is replicable in the, at every sort of uh, magnification of the tree. So from the tiniest branches to the big branches to the tree as a whole, you can see that sort of three-part structure. Now, when you're writing a story, Think of the, the, the idea of a cat up a tree. A cat um, is owned by a person who's very fond of it. That person becomes our main character. We can identify with this emotional relationship with the cat. The cat runs up the tree and gets lost. The person, our main character, follows the cat. Now, this is true of 
war stories, love stories, uh, kind of romances, whatever. You have a person you're invested in, you have something which for some emotional reason they need to attain. The woman or the man runs up the tree, they get into the first branches, they go to further and further branches. Every time they're making decisions, every decision is more perilous because the tree branches are getting thinner. So you have a problem, a complication, and a complication involves a number of choices, and each choice, because things don't necessarily work out like you hope, each choice puts your character in more and more jeopardy. And finally, that character gets to a point which generally falls two-thirds of the way through a film or a play or a movie or a book where they have to make a fundamentally life-changing decision. And if we're invested in them, then at that kind of, we call it the second act climax in movie theory, at that point in the story, you make that final leap, that final death-defying decision to either abandon the cat or jump out of the tree or call in a friend, something which is a at odds with the character's nature up until that point. And at that point, when the character changes, we, the audience, having followed them thus far, have an emotional rush of, yes, that's the solution to my problems too. And weirdly, the films that you remember as your top 10 favorite films are generally not the ones that are best produced or most, you know, you know, the most glossy films or the ones with your favorite actor. They're the ones that taught you that essential message. It's possible to do a list of your top 10 films and go, ah, yes, that's what I learned from that one. <clears throat> so that's how stories work. That's how they achieve their emotional effect. And that's, how, and that's really, I suppose, one thing that we can apply to scientific storytelling, the problem being, the problem being that all of that amazing information is just the substrate if you think of a story like The Beautiful Mind or, or the one about Ramanujan, the maths aren't really in it. You're following an emotional journey. And there is a way of taking scientific stories and making them into an emotional journey, but you lose all of that other detail along the way. And I think that's what Gerrit is going to be talking about. Okay, um, so... I'm a scientist, so is storytelling bad for science? Uh, in reality, I'm, I'm on the fence, okay? one way or the other. I can see the positive side of storytelling in science. I understand that we need storytelling to get across the marvels of science, just what is it we know about the universe. And while science itself is supposed to be unemotional and impersonal, scientists aren't. Scientists are just people. They have emotions, and some of us have personalities, right? <laughs> but I also see and I experience the downside of scientific storytelling. And I think there's something very important to remember, is that science itself is not telling stories, okay? Storytelling is not how we do science. So what do I mean? So we should have a picture? Yes. This guy. Many of you probably recognize who this is. This is Albert Einstein, right? Probably the most famous scientist that we know. And many of you might know his story, right? The story of the patent clerk, the lone genius working away, overturning the universe, changing the way we understood everything at a time when many thought science was actually solved. 
Now, it's a nice story. It's a highly inaccurate story. And one thing that is actually missing in all of this story is the act of doing science. Okay? The actual doing of the science often is left out of the actual storytelling. So, scientists need stories, right? We're guided by stories. We're guided by stories we set ourselves, right? We set ourselves imagination of particular situations, and from there, we build our scientific ideas. But Einstein himself didn't become scientifically famous for setting out his, his understanding of the universe in terms of words and narrative. He became famous for setting out his understanding of the universe in the language of mathematics. Okay? So it wasn't a story about how the universe was, but a mathematical description of how the universe is. Einstein's mathematical universe is built on axioms, assumptions, complicated derivations, and mathematical dead ends. Things that are often lost in the story of Albert Einstein. People know more about his personal life than his struggle with mathematics. Okay? So, where's the problem? Well, students who are drawn to the sciences are often drawn there by the stories that they've seen in print and in the media. And on their way, they build a picture of the scientist and what the scientist does. So they have this mental picture of what, what is science. And then, when they get to actually do some science, get to the actual research, they find that their notions of the scientist are actually dashed. Okay? The scientist of their mind is actually a myth. What they discover? They discover that the lone genius, the lone genius is a rare thing if they've ever existed at all. Scientists don't work in isolation. The polymath, the polymath who can understand the universe from fundamental physics to the working of the brain, they are nowhere to be seen. Okay? The scientists find themselves in groups of one, two, ten, or a thousand, each chipping away at a tiny problem. And in that chipping away, science painfully inches its way forward. Not like the leaps and bounds that they read in their scientific stories. The scientific beast is often very different to the scientific beast you see in stories. The other thing that gets lost I can see some science students here in the audience. The other thing that gets lost is that science is actually quite hard. Right? <laughs> science is wrapped up in you know, the technicalities and complexities of the de deriving equations. And looking around the room, I can see some faces in certain directions. Of computer code that won't compile and always crashes. Experiments that continuously fails, shonky statistics, or just the inability to come up with a new and novel idea to explain something. Science is hard. Okay? It's often lost in the stories. There's also little room for storytelling when a scientist wants to tell another scientist about their work. The scientific paper is often content-rich, but very light on narrative. Right? It's one of those things which is to the point, and removes the personal, and it's just give me the facts. Now, scientists already find that level of writing quite difficult, but the notion that they would have to wrap up that sort of 
scientific work within a story would probably be a step too far for many of them. So the simple fact is, at the end of the day, is the telling of stories about science does very little to prepare anybody for the actual doing of science. Okay? They're very disconnected things. And as I said, I've seen this happen. You know, new students come in fresh-faced, next person to win a Nobel Prize. That's actually dashed out to them very quickly when they realize how hard it is, how hard it is to contribute to the scientific enterprise. It's not like it is in the stories. So there's another downside. I'm just going to touch on this quite quickly. This is another little story, right? So I'm a cosmologist, right? I want to understand how the universe works. And a lot of people want to understand how the universe works. But to convey that wonder of the universe to a broader audience, we use metaphors and analogies and pictures, etc., about the universe. The big problem is, is that to some people, those pictures are the science. Now, there's a certain kind of person, right? often a retired engineer, <laughs> usually male, who writes to cosmologists and says to cosmologists, your science of the universe is all wrong. Hawking and Einstein, they're frauds, but I know the answer. Now, they've never read a scientific paper in their life, but they've read the stories, and they've looked at the pictures, and they understand the analogies, and they don't like them. So they give you new ones. And sometimes on nicely typed up bits of paper, sometimes handwritten bits of paper, often in red ink, okay? <laughs> they lay out the story, and they say to you, this story I've got here, this new way of looking at the universe, it's going to change everything. If only you cosmologists will help me with the mathematics. As if the mathematics is meant to be the easy bit, okay? So, as I said, I'm on the fence, right? When it comes to scientific storytelling, I see the positives, but I also see the negatives, right? I worry that the act of scientific storytelling doesn't tell people what actually science is about. So we have to be very, very careful. If we are going to do scientific storytelling, and it is going to be very important, we have to be very, very careful it doesn't become an act of science fiction. And I should finish there. Thank you. All right, thank you very much. So um, the theatre maker, Alana Valentine, will talk to us about the value of collaboration. Ten years ago, I was invited to go out to the park's radio telescope and live for two weeks with the astronomers who worked there. When I arrived, one of the scientists said to me, so what do you know about astronomy? I said, I know about the Big Bang. And she said, the Big Bang is a great story, but it's highly contested science. I said, really? Why is that? And she said, the four currently hypothesised contributors to the energy density of the universe are curvature, matter, radiation and dark energy. I said, yep, yep, I'm following. <laughs> An Australian-led team of astronomers has now proved that the universe is expanding at an increasing rate, not slowing down, as a Big Bang metaphor might induce you to surmise. Oh, right. Then she said, what do you know about the neutron stars, the, the pulsars that we study here? Now, I'm nothing if not observant. So I looked at her and I said very carefully, nothing? 
I know absolutely nothing about pulsars. Why don't you tell me? And that's when she smiled and said, uh-huh, fast learner. <laughs> Storytelling is inevitable in science. When scientists are trying to communicate their findings to people like me, they are, of course, going to use comparisons with things I do understand to explain things that I don't. But what my close contact with those radio astronomers and now with the nutrition scientists at the CPC has taught me is that those simple, comprehensible, intriguing descriptions that scientists use to communicate with me, they are not silent. science. Science is the pleasure of disagreeing about how the material world functions. And I should not think that I can understand what someone who has a PhD in astrophysics can understand just because they have an elegantly condensed it into a story for me. In drama, we use metaphors and conflict to crush a huge amount of information down into a complex nugget of entertainment. A playwright listens and records and condenses months and sometimes years of observations and conversations into a fast-moving, dense piece of drama, a bit like a pulsar, which I now know is the densest form of matter. No character I can write in a play is ever going to be as beautiful and awe-inspiring as a real human being in his or her complexity and perversity. But my storytelling techniques might allow an audience to look at their fellow human beings with more nuance, to confront sometimes uncomfortable truths about human nature. Art does not try to imitate life. It tries to make us look at it in a new way. Storytelling is not a soft skill or an easy turn. The writer-in-residence scheme at the CPC answers the question of whether storytelling is good for science with a yes when scientists engage professionals to sometimes work with them. Yes, when they build constructive strategic alliances with working writers. Yes, when scientists respect storytelling enough to engage them for a sustained period of time. I suggest that scientists might think of storytelling as a useful tool that, if cleverly done, can make us appreciate what, more deeply the astonishing complex work that scientists do. At the end of my visit to Parks, I climbed up to the focus cabin, which is the receiver of the telescope, the part that collects and translates the signals from pulsars into data, and I wrote a poem that is now in my play, Ear to the Edge of Time. You are frying in a large white wok of glare and heat, walking up the ribs of the bowl, climbing up the spine, then crawling clipped on and harnessed to the summit cabin, a refrigerator 55 metres in the air, caught in the breeze of your own fear and ecstasy, snatching at the rails for words that won't unbalance this sense of utter thrill and bone and scrape and joy of being up so high in the neck of such a mechanism, its eye dredging the stars for answers, and you impaled with dread of the descent, not only to the ground, but to the time after one single point of contact with all this air. Thank you.
And so fifthly, um, we hear now from Jenny Byrne, the molecular geneticist on Sleeping Beauty. Thank you, Nick. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm a biomedical researcher and I think I'm quite a typical member of my species, if you like, except for one thing, and that is that I like writing. Now, I know I'm unusual because for about the last 13 years I've been teaching on a yearly basis. Just at one lecture that I give to PhD and master's students on my campus, about the use of narrative in scientific writing. And I know from the looks of my students' faces that they are not looking forward to the idea of spending a lot of their time writing science. And I'd say, you know, probably only maybe one in 10 scientists would really say that they like to write. But having said that I like to write, you shouldn't think that that means that I find it easy. So when I'm really in the thick of starting something, there are a few things that spring to mind, a few words and images. You might be surprised to know that one of those is bloodbath. The other is fight to the death. And I think of these things all the time. I have a mental image of myself grappling with something that looks a bit like a slippery dragon. And I am fighting it and trying to break its back. And it is as if it is basically me against the ideas that I'm working against. And I know that it's either the ideas or me. I have to break those down, whatever the cost. Remember, I like writing. Imagine what it's like for the majority of people that don't. So to tell you about what I think sometimes goes wrong in the process of scientific writing, I'm going to refer to an old fairy tale. It is storytelling after all. The fairy tale of Sleeping Beauty. I'm sure most of you know this story, but just for the few people that might not, Sleeping Beauty, I think, was written in about the 13th century, and it's a story of a baby princess who is cursed at birth to fall asleep after a minor accident. And this takes place when she's, you know, a young woman. She pricks her finger, she falls asleep, and in fact, her whole family and everybody in the castle falls asleep with her. She sleeps for a hundred years, and during that time, a thick forest grows up around the castle so that it can't be seen. You know, a hundred years later, a prince is riding by on a horse with a sword. He's heard about the princess. He's determined to get to that castle. So he literally hacks his way through that forest. He gets to the castle, he walks straight in. He finds the princess, wakes her up. They live happily ever after. A nice story, what has it got to do with science? Well, I think that ideas and results are viewed by their creators as something very valuable. Sometimes these ideas get wrapped up in what I call the forest of words. This is a description that may lack structure. It may overuse complex language. Why does this happen? Many reasons, probably. One of the things is it's maybe a bit easier. It's, you know, the alternative is hard. Um, so wrapping your ideas up also creates some expectation from the reader that if the reader really wants to get to this idea, they'll do the hard work. They'll hack their way through. Now, that's a nice theory, but it doesn't meet the reality in science where we have to read so much literature all the time. And I think what happens is sometimes when people pick up these papers that are forests of words and they start reading them and they realise, I'm going to have to work really hard here, they just put it down and pick up the next one because there will always be a next one. And so these forest of words papers essentially go to sleep within the literature and people hardly realise they're there. Now, there's actually a type of paper now called a sleeping beauty. This was described about 14 years ago, I think. This is a paper, when it's published, goes to sleep. Nobody looks at it. Until another paper comes along that's actually called The Prince. The Prince 
recognises the value of the paper, cites it, and after that the paper becomes very highly cited and, and influential, sometimes in a completely different field. So this is a real thing. People study these sleeping beauties and their princes as a kind of extreme example of how science can work or not work, depending on your perspective. Now, there's a general idea that the, particularly the extreme sleeping beauties, the papers that might have been literally asleep for 100 years, were simply a long way ahead of their time. But I wonder how many were affected by the forest of word issue. They were just hard to understand. And I think it's important to remember that this, the story of Sleeping Beauty very strongly depends upon the prince, just as Sleeping Beauties in the literature become recognised as such through the action of a prince paper. How many other papers are sleeping in the literature without anybody realising it, wrapped in their forests of words? So what can we do about this? Well, I think that scientists themselves, we need to spend more time recognising the difficulty of hacking through our own ideas so that other people can understand them. That is our responsibility, in my view. But that's what leads to the bloodbath. So we don't tend to talk about that because if I were to mention that in one of my lectures, someone might call security. That's a reasonable thing. But you know, scientists in some, you know, in the sporting world, we fully accept that professional sports people push themselves to the limit. Not all the time, but sometimes. They do that, and they are supported to do that. And I think that scientists also have to talk more openly about, I guess, the merits of pushing yourself to your intellectual limit. What you need to get there, how you get there, how you stay there, but importantly, the support that you need. And in, unintentionally, I think there are some aspects of the scientific workplace that are more weighted towards producing quantity as opposed to quality. And they don't really favour that very difficult process of hacking through your own ideas. So just to finish, I'm going to go back to the story of Sleeping Beauty. I mentioned when I told the story very quickly that the princess went to sleep, but so did everybody in the castle, even down to the animals. It's important to think that when papers go to sleep in the literature, it's not just about the people that wrote those papers. It's about the money that went into them. It's about the institutions that supported them. All of that goes to sleep as well. We can't afford to have our ideas going to sleep because I don't think, unfortunately, that humanity has the next 100 years to wait. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Um, I'd like to take up a little bit this question just to touch off directly from Jenny. Um, so, and you know, coming back a little bit to Geraint's um, section as well. So, we do the work that we do uh, in science in the ways that we do it, um, the technicalities and the scientific work and so forth. Uh, but publishing it requires that we that we write it up, and that's, that's what you're talking about now. So I wanted to ask you um, to, to talk about the problem of how we actually write up papers and the, the, the sense in which we embellish. Uh, you know, this is sort of one of the secrets, uh, the worst-kept secrets in a way of, of, of scientific uh, writing or writing up. 
scientific work. You know, you might have an experiment and, and you had an idea about what was going to happen, but that experiment didn't work out. And, uh, you know, so you tried one, a different one and then that one didn't work out or something unexpected happened and that, you celebrate that and you write up the paper. But when you write up the paper, often, you know, uh, students will get told, you know, I don't want to have the narrative of discovery. Just tell us the thing that you're going to show in the paper. So in the end, what happens is that you, you, you really are writing something that's fictional, really. Um, you know, it's not to say that it's false that, that you showed a certain thing, but what you actually pitch in the end uh, is a different story to, to what really happened in reality. So, um, you know, I wondered if you'd like to comment on that and, and around questions like the developments now where people are trying to avoid that by doing things like pre-registering uh, you know, their, their experiments before they do them and so on. Yes, I think that's an excellent question and that is probably the, the reason why I think that some scientists worry about this concept of storytelling because they equate storytelling as not telling the truth. But the, the way that I guess a, a lot of people view it is it's the, the use of narrative is just a way of trying to connect facts and results so that they make some kind of sense. This was brought home to me when I was a, a postdoc overseas, actually. I remember I wrote... Look, I didn't have a lot of training in scientific writing. I'd written a fair bit by the time I'd finished my PhD, but that doesn't mean I was good at it. So I wrote a, you know, a lengthy paper and I gave it to my boss and it was basically a blow-by-blow -blow account of all the experiments that I'd done. And he just looked at me and said, Jennifer, no one cares. <laughs> and, you know, it was such a profound thing. You know, that is the thing. I care, no one else does. You know, get it in some sort of format that someone else can understand and really un understand what you did. And I think that's that, it's that fine line, you know. We, as scientists, we are the best people to communicate. We're the worst people to communicate as well. You know, we need to know, in any story, you need to know what to put in and what to leave out because your paper can't be 30 pages long. No one will read it, no one will understand it. So it's, it's learning that fine line and I think that's a life's work. You know, you never stop learning that. So you mean leaving out information or recasting what happened? There's, there's collateral damage which is acceptable? Well, not, I think there's just stuff that really doesn't matter. And that, but that takes time to learn. And sometimes by paying too much attention to the detail, you actually lose the main thrust of what you're writing about and what it actually means. So, it, look, it's tricky. Um, but... I think you can, you can tell people too much and, you know, is it better that they read a paper that makes sense, that's, that accurately reflects what happens but may not tell absolutely every single detail or is it better that you write something exhaustively long that no one will ever read? Geraint, do you have a comment on that? Yeah, I think, I think part of the problem is, is when we write scientific papers, we are not writing them for the general audience, we're writing them for other scientists. And the, the way papers are written, they're assessed by your peers, and they've come to expect a certain style. So if you try and deviate from that style and decide, oh, I will make a bit of a story out of it, uh, you're slapped with the unprofessional stick very hard and told to get back into line and write the scientific paper. I actually, uh, I have a, a number of PhD students, I know that they... <coughs> They, they struggle to read papers because they, they are very dry, etc. But they also hide something else. They also hide the, often the pain and the problems and everything else the person had to go through. A paper can look like, oh, we started 
this sort of experiment, we did this kind of work, these results popped out, aren't we great? And you miss all the stuff in between about what went wrong and what, you know, I was ill here and this didn't work. And blah, blah. So all of that is gone and it can seem that research is this easy start at A through B and you get to C kind of thing without all of the technicalities in there. So um, one thing that many of us notice nowadays is because of social media and the internet and everything else, um, there's quite often when a paper comes out that there's a lot of commentary. Uh, it may be in 280 characters on Twitter or it may be in a blog post or what, what have you. Um, something I'm noticing more and more is that papers get accompanied by these other kinds of commentary. Are you seeing that? Stories getting told in that sort of ancillary literature in a way? Yep, absolutely. So, so it is, again, uh, I wouldn't say popular, but it's growing that uh, people will get their paper accepted and they will write a, a more general blog post that goes into a bit more of the, the, the rest of the stuff around the work. But again, it, the blog post is still aimed at other scientists. It's still not there as the, the, the story that you would necessarily tell to the, to the world. But it, it does actually um, make the actual doing of research a little clearer than from what you would get from the paper. Right. Yeah, and there's an issue there of, of how widely we want to share knowledge. I mean, it's certainly evident to me in medicine, you probably recognize this well, Jenny, that the complex language was used as a way of deliberately obfuscating things, you know. And medicine is, med medical communication has come through a bit of a renaissance in the last 20 years just because doctors have finally realized that the, the power needs to reside with the patients. You get much more from that exchange than from holding power to yourself as a profession. And therefore, the more explicable, comprehensible you can make things, then then the better, you know, there's a huge amount. And I'm sure the, true is, the same is true in uh, astronomy, just with citizen scientists, like that wonderful guy up in the Blue Mountain who discovered all the nebulae. Um, yes, I'm trying to remember exactly who that is. Anyway, there's a guy in the Blue Mountains who's <laughs> discovered, he's just, a, he's just a normal amateur scientist. He presumably can't do all the maths, but he's just got this fabulous way of recognizing, um, you know, so I think we need to, if we're going to harness the combined intellectual power of people who aren't scientists, then there's certainly a kind of a, an argument for making science more comprehensible, for, for, for laying it out in more simple language and more readily digestible narrative forms, yeah? Can I just um, bring it um, to Alana now? I just sort of want to touching off of, from that to talk a bit more about story um, as an art and kind of press you a little bit on that point. So, yeah. you know, we're talking about um, just now about sort of, you know, I can do a blog post about what happened, you know, when I wrote my paper or things that went wrong or what have you. Um, and I might be just tapping into my natural, I mean, all of us tell stories, mm. you know, in a, in a completely natural way when we come home and I, I tell you what happened on the bus, right? I mean, we all have that ability and some of us are better than others, but it's a, comp it's a basic competence in, essentially in language. Um, but of course, at the other end of the scale, you've got uh, the kind of work that, that you do and the, the really developed, highly specialised works of art that yeah. we think of when we think of you know, stage productions and so on. So I wonder if there's a... You know, what, what is the nature of the line between storytelling at those two ends of that scale and whether you could think of it, for example, as the difference between handicraft and art, you know, <laughs> so that if, for example, you could say, well, you're absolutely right, you know, you can't 
you can't just become a storyteller tomorrow, but you can learn how to weave a basket that holds objects and you know, maybe chuck it away and you know, make a new one. But there are some basic skills that you can learn. So I'm just sort of wondering, where do we, you know, what's the relationship between those two ends of the, of the spectrum? Yeah, I think one of the things that has struck me in the residencies I've had among scientists getting to know what they think is, is them starting to understand how hard it is to, um, to say something as an artist. One of the fallacies I think about what storytellers do is that storytelling is the main game. Storytelling is just a tool that we use as well to say um, uncomfortable truths and what's struck me about lots of scientists that I've met who are really visionary is that they often have sort of really difficult truths to tell the public. And storytelling, like the way I will use a story to say something deep and um, original, I hope, um, scientists can use storytelling in that way. So it's kind of like I'm learning how to use story and narrative. And the truth is, you know, in theatre particularly, we have to pull rabbits out of the hat all the time because audiences become inured to, you know, certain things and they think, oh, yeah, I know what this is. And you've just got to constantly be inventive and show them new things. Well, what I've found is that scientists are up against the same thing. They, they have a, a group of people that they're basically arguing with. They disagree all the time. And they need to find new ways to couch those ideas so that it gets across. So for me, I guess it's not so much this kind of... What, what, what offends me is this idea that storytelling is, is kind of um, a, a, a soft or a, a weak or a playful kind of thing. It's actually um, to do with the way Australian... Australia thinks sometimes of, of artists. So I think that's been one of the really uh, fantastic things for me, that scientists kind of go, wow, this is, you know, this can be accurate as well as entertaining. Right. And that's why they will start to use those storytelling techniques in their work. I mean, I, mean, I certainly think scientists should, you know, study the, the greats, just as when I'm writing a play about scientists, I study the the scientists, you know. Right. Yeah, well, yeah. You, you, well, the, the paradox, though, is that, I mean, stories are also designed to be ambiguous, aren't they? Yeah. And, uh, and so when you write a story, you don't necessarily expect everybody to take the same meaning from it. And I think that's probably what worries scientists, that, uh, you know, you construct a lovely story about... I mean, I was saying to Geraint the other day, oh, the only thing I know about Einstein is equals mc squared, and, and Geraint said, well, that's not actually the formula. <laughs> it's like this is a simplified version that has been sold to the... Well, you can actually talk more about this, Geraint. Like, what, you, like what's the real formula? <laughs> <laughs> Is it? I, I, well, I, I, who likes formula? I like formula, but it doesn't mean the room likes it. No, no but I just want that e equals mc squared. I mean, it's a, it's a nice little little thing. Very memorable. Very memorable. But as I said to you, what do you do with it? Yeah. And if you want to actually use it, you realise that that's not actually the full formula. There are other bits that go on there. Well, now you've got a slightly longer formula. What do you do with it? Well, you need the mathematical framework around that if you're going to run a nuclear reactor or build an <laughs> atom bomb or something. E equals yeah. MC squared is a, is a, it's a catchphrase, but yeah. you can't do a lot with it. No. So you need... It's a bumper sticker. Yeah, you yeah. need a lot yeah. of the apparatus yeah. around it. Yeah. I mean, there's an interesting problem um, 
with you, you use the phrase deep and original, mm. uh, you know, which I think is, you know, it's an important point that, you know, you expect in a way, I guess, with, with, with writing and, and, and performances and, and, and films and so forth, that, or you hope that you're going to get something deep and original. Um, and I guess this might sort of get towards where part of the problem is that with a lot of scientific work, you know, and perhaps this is what you're touching on a bit, it's not deep and original. I mean, with that sort of incremental inch-by-inch inch work, you know, I can think of all sorts of linguistics papers which, you know, discover... You know, I won't even begin to bore you with what they might discover, but, you know, small incremental kind of findings and, uh, it, you know, they would crush under the weight of trying to, you know, um, produce something deep and original. Uh, so, you know, maybe that's part of the challenge there. Uh, just coming back to John, I was interested in, the, the, you know, your reaction to the question of also that um, sort of scale between the, the, let's say, the deep and original at one end, which is usually correlates with the highly artistic and, and specialised, you know, and the sort of incremental and perhaps every day at the other end, which I think a lot of us, you know, have basic skills for. Yeah. I read a film once about Charles Darwin called Creation. It's about his discovery of the origin of species. And, of course, you don't learn anything about genetics in the course of the movie. The, the, the story was really about Darwin lost his daughter, his beloved daughter, Annie, aged eight, and he and his wife dealt with this in two different ways. Darwin tried to understand the genetic legacy, which he and his wife, who was his first cousin, had kind of handed to this girl, and his wife tried to understand her death in terms of um, religion. And so as Darwin trended more and more towards science, his wife was tending more and more towards religious belief, and it was only really by writing the book that, that they began to understand that they were both talking about the same thing. And there was a third language that was missing, which is the language that hadn't been discovered yet of psychoanalysis and Freud and guilt and all that stuff. So you could watch that whole film and really get a global notion of how Darwin used family life as a kind of as a scientific instrument, which I think is a really interesting take-home sort of message. But you would get none of the fine detail of his theory in the same way that from watching A Beautiful Mind, I got nothing of John Nash's mathematical theories. And, you know, it's the film wasn't about that. It was about the personal journey. Now, that's not to say that you can't actually take a really, take a scientific theory which you, um, which, is, which is very specific and very accurate and very finite and write that in a narrative term. And I think that's probably something that we should be talking about. You know, like if you, if you are working in a lab and you do have some rather arcane piece of scientific information which is worth transmitting, then how do you find the way to make that into a narrative story that's not going to confuse people, not going to bore them, you know? And it is about selection. And we talked a lot about, you know, the thicket of, the thicket of information. We all struggle with that. And a lot of screenwriting and playwriting is, is just making these choices in the branching tree of possibilities going, no, I'm going to go this way, then I'm going to go that way, and that way, and that way. And this will actually, we're going to ignore all of that other information, but people will feel they've been on a journey, and they'll end up, and they'll follow it because there's a kind of, there's a clear sense of promise to this. You know, we're after something, we're chasing something, and they'll end up with a conclusion that 
makes that is satisfying. And then when I talked about the fractal structure of a tree, you can go back through that branching course and you can see all the other possibilities that came off them. When you're talking about the hard work of science, my dad was a microbiologist and he, uh, you know, he spent years and decades of his life looking down a microscope with things nobody else could see, you know. And I'm, so I'm, I'm aware of the, of the sheer slog and the, and the frequent disappointments of that kind of work. But nonetheless, there's a way of taking even the tiny incremental achievements and framing them into a story that, that you can then give people in a scientific paper or a, or, uh, a broadcast. We actually talked earlier also about the way that, you know, everything is two-sized to it. And this, the, the idea of broadcasting information gets abused because then, you know, cancer treatments get wildly kind of, you know, emotionalized and lauded when they're not actually, before they actually amount to anything. And that's a, that's a problem in, in, in scientific literature at the minute, isn't it? The, the fact that you can make something emotionally appealing without it being true. Well, yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's kind of the, the bad side of it. And I think some scientists see that, and that also makes them even more reticent. They think, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be the person, you know, setting out, you know, behind the press release that says that, oh, this cancer's cured when it isn't, you know, because at the end of the day, we are about facts, or we, we try very hard to be. Yeah. Okay, so um, it's a good time, I think, to open up um, the discussion to the audience. Um, as I said earlier on, uh, hopefully you've been um, thinking about the ideas that you want to throw at us um, and direct your questions to uh, members of the panel. We've got roving uh, mics, and um, so as I said before, please um, keep it um, brief, questions to the point, and let's have um, uh, men and women in equal measure, so I'll try, we'll try to alternate if we can, possibly. Um, whoever's got a mic, you could start. Okay, look, my question was how does, science has a story to tell, I think, all the time, but how does science tell stories that are difficult to tell? And just a little bit of context, I'm actually in the middle of making a documentary about climate change and the, and the planet. And, you know, it's a story about an American biologist conservationist who has a PhD in Australia and he comes to Australia and he discovers that 40% of the mangroves in the Gulf of Carpentaria have died due to a three-day heat event, you know. And then he finds Robin Williams on the south coast of the New South Wales who used to run the ABC Science Show for years living in a small cabin because... He's just reduced his lifestyle to that. And so this is such an important story that science has to tell. And we're using devices like stand-up comics. We're using things like animation, you know, trying to find tools to convey the story to people so that they can each see what they can do, what each of us can do, essentially, about what I think John said, the story, the story of our time, which I think it is. So that's, my, that's the challenge, you know, I think that, that, that I'd, I love what you've all said, I just think it's fantastic in terms of the challenge and the... Okay, thank you. No, no question there, so let's have, <laughs> let's have um, the, the, next, the next person's question, thank you. Thanks for an interesting talk. Just wondering how we get around the issue, and it's a, a prevalent one on the other side of the mountain where dealing with landholders, they're actually being told stories about grazing management and other things that are basically false, and they don't have the ability to um, basically crap detect that it is false. How do we get around some of those sorts of issues about science stories getting out that are basically have no foundation to them, no scientific foundation to them? Look, I, because 
I mean, this thing about the amount of information that's available to us and the amount of information that we see is, is kind of, uh, I think, fascinating. And this is a, so this is just a NASA video of our atmosphere. Now, the amount of information that's gone into this is quite mind-boggling. This is fast forward over two minutes of two years of the whole Earth atmosphere. And these are dust storms coming in from Africa. And these are, this is salt whirls showing hurricanes in the Atlantic and the Pacific. And, and this is smoke from forest fires in America. So what you can do with film now is you can actually, and this has a bearing on kind of land management and stuff, you can actually now show sort of fast forward of a year of vast areas of territory taken from satellite pictures and show people undeniably what is actually happening, you know? And that, I think, is in terms of visual storytelling, the kind of film storytelling that I'm amazed at. It's the one thing that actually gives me hope for, for communicating the climate change message because there's so much information just in this two minutes of film, you know, and, it's, and at the same time, it's, it's kind of emotionally affecting because we're watching, you know, in this thin veneer that covers the planet of air and water. A, a fact I heard the other day was if you have a beach ball two and a half meters in diameter and that represents the globe, then the thickness of the atmosphere that is breathable is the thickness of a 10-cent coin. And the thickness of the deep, deepest oceans is the same. And what we're seeing here is, this, is the perturbations of that tiny veneer that we can live in. And to me, that's absolutely kind of staggering, that stuff. And it's now available to us with satellite photography. So, I mean, if I could also just come back to the question, um, you know, I, I didn't quite catch all of it, but you ended up asking, you know, how do we know that a story is on the level that it's actually, you know, that it's not... BS, right? Yeah, so I mean, I think the same um, rules apply as, as apply in science generally, that, that um, we need to give evidence for the claims that we're making and that we need to make that evidence available where we make the claims. So I don't think stories uh, are in any way any less accountable for having to produce evidence um, for the claims that they make. I mean, I think that would be the simple, the simple answer. I don't know if others want to... I just wanted, wanted to add, I, I think... I think this is part of a bigger issue, is that uh, you need scientific literacy in the population. You need yeah. people to say, if somebody says, oh, this is what's happening, you need to say, well, how do you know that? Right? That's the scientific response is, how do you know? What is your evidence? And what, what do other people think? And so you should, should never listen to a single source, and you should always say, how did you come to that conclusion and based on what evidence? But it's, it's scientific literacy and scientific thinking. And I think you can apply exactly those, um, those uh, conditions to storytelling just as well as you can to anything else. So I would say storytelling is not exempt the, from that. I yeah. guess the only problem with that is that the landholders don't... They, it's a nice, easy story and it tells them they haven't got to do anything. So that's where they take it up. They go, you don't have to add nutrients. Your grass will just grow regardless. They like the story. They're not going to question it. Okay. Let's that's so the let's biggest the problem. But just, just add quickly, now we have an experiment in action, right? So now they're experimenting. They're not going to do anything, and if their grass dies, then we know that the result of that experiment was that they were lied to. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that's, that's the scientific method. Yeah, good. Okay. Hello. Thank you very much for the uh, interesting talks tonight. Um, so obviously one clear message that's come across is that there's a trade-off um, in terms of telling stories, don't tell stories. You know, there's some pros, there's some cons to each. Um, a lot of the arguments made tonight have been anecdotal, 
my question is, what does the science say? Is there any evidence? Is there any statistics so <laughs> to show? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's a better approach. Look, I might... Well, there, I mean, if yeah. I can just say, there is a paper a um, that was published in the PNAS journal, The Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, uh, showing, or maybe it was plus one, I don't know, it, but it was showing um, that um, they, had, they had actually done a study of a large number of, uh, of journal articles, I think it actually was the articles were in plus one because they published so much stuff, um, and they coded for what they called markers of narrative style, and that there's a question as to whether those actually, you know, how legitimate they are, but they are something that was coded for, and they, the, the news was um, that if those, if those markers of narrative style are present in the abstract of the article, then that will correlate with the article being more widely cited. Uh, so that's, that's in the last few years that was published. Um, and I don't think it's a great measure of storytelling as such, but it's one recent measure we have that using uh, some elements of narrative language does lead to greater uptake in the, in the, uh, of, of, of the literature, quite independent of what the paper was about, uh, what its quality was. And so I think it's an important, um, it's an important mm. finding. Yeah. So we had another next question at the back. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a journalist and uh, at the moment I've noticed there's a real ob obsession with narrative and accessibility. Tell the story, tell the story, it'll be accessible, it, it'll be accessible. My question is, what's wrong with something being inaccessible and hard? I might, I, look, I don't think that there's anything wrong with something being hard. Because a lot of what we do write about is hard. That's what I, I teach my students. Scientific writing is, is hard because we are writing about things that are unknown, they've never been talked about before. Sometimes there's not really even the language to describe them. They're difficult to conceptualise, they're difficult to explain. But that doesn't mean that they should be inaccessible. You know, and particularly they should not be inaccessible to people within that field. That's a massive problem. What you know, the Sleeping Beauties are interesting because sometimes they become very influential in another field. I think it's even harder for an idea to jump fields. For that to happen, it's got to be clear. Like, what that was has got to be clear to somebody so that we can make those jumps. That's when the big breakthroughs come. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm all for hard, but I think when it's inaccessible, it, it becomes... the point becomes lost. And I think sometimes that's gratuitous. Uh, you know, or at least unnecessary. Mm. So I think you're, you know, sure, if it's a complicated thing, um, don't expect someone just to just understand it like that. But, you know, I, I have this discussion with my, with my students and, you know, my students get advice. Some of them get advice, which I don't understand, but it's they get advised to use what's called academic writing. Um, and academic writing is where you use long words for... for <laughs> for where you could have used a short one, right? That's to say utilise instead of use or say individual instead of person. Um, and so that's, you know, that doesn't... What that does is, you know, it creates the problems that Jenny was talking about with the Sleeping Beauties that what contributes to that. It just makes it harder to process yeah. the stuff. There's also a balance between complexity and simplicity, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, it's like reading a detective story. You don't want it to be that easy to solve. You know, you want to be surprised by it. You want to be engaged by it intellectually. And so I guess it's finding that balance, isn't it, between what your average reader can follow you through 
and how much of the story you put in. And I, my wife's an investigative journalist, so she's constantly wrestling with the same kind of stuff, you know. But there is definitely a, a balance between the kind of the easy to understand narrative and the and the uh, and the very complex narrative. There was a study done recently of you know what makes a good Hollywood screenplay, and I hate these things because they always come up with the same you know lesson. Oh, it's got to have a man and a woman. There's got to be a love story. There's got to be a blah 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 blah. And if every film was like that, we'd all be bored, witless, wouldn't we? So we need the ones that are just a little bit more. Challenging. Did you? Were you going to say something? Else? Oh, I just wanted to say I think that actually being simple and being clear is actually very hard. Mm. And I think that what you're talking about is is just muddled, bad, o verbose, uh, overstuffed writing. Um, <laughs> you know that that's just bad in any field. Uh, and actually, you know, it's it's the elegance of hard thinking to crush something down That's into... Um, and I, I also sort of object to this idea of um, that story means fantasy or fabrication. It doesn't. It actually just kind of means structuring mm. your ideas. And too many scientists, it sounds like to me, don't take the time to structure yeah. it as a piece of communication. And that doesn't actually necessarily mean, you know, a, a, a walk with the fairies. It means, um, you know, elegance of form. And that that's actually a beautiful thing. Mm. Yeah, when yeah. I'm going through my students' paper, you know, I'll sometimes get to points where, like, I don't understand what are. it is. Yeah. And <laughs> I'll say to them, look, if I don't understand it, we're in real trouble. Yeah. You know, how else? <laughs> but you might think that only happens occasionally. It happens all the time. <laughs> and that's nothing unusual. This is the fight that we, we undertake every day. Do you believe that you can, that you can take the very complex ideas in, say, cancer treatment and express them in the words that sort of a, your average school student... Yes, absolutely. Even the most arcane... Yes, I mean, cancer actually is probably... You know, I think there's far more difficult things to talk about than cancer. Right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I, I, th I think we can. Maybe not I can, but, but people can, yeah. Okay. There's a question at the back. Uh, my question was more regarding funding and how that influences the stories that you have to tell for science. So obviously you have to communicate to the people that control the purse strings what the research is for commercially in some instances. How does that affect storytelling? Has that changed over time? What's the situation there? Right. Can I, uh, Please, yeah. So uh, in Australia, the, the grant embodies the Australian Research Council, but the same structures around the world you know, you get 10 pages to lay out your case. They say the first page is the killer page because that ha has to be understood by the entire panel. Now, the panel for, for me might be physicists, mathematicians, and engineers. So I, I do have to set the story correctly for, and in a language they will understand, but um, I don't have to write something that everybody in the world would understand. So, yeah, we do have to tailor the, the language, and, but then it becomes a more specific story as you go through because then you're appealing to the expert. So yeah, we, we, we do tailor our, our text for the, the assessors. I think maybe also there's something else you might have been hinting at and, and one thing that comes to mind about the ARC funding applications um, is that you get asked certain questions which have to do not necessarily with the content of the research 
uh, but with the political context of the government that's funding it. So you get, for example, a question um, on, the, uh, on, on the ARC application forms, which I don't know if this has changed in the last year or two, but it says something like national benefit. Isn't, yes. that, isn't that what it is? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, that you have to uh, fill in a box which says what is the national benefit uh, of this research. So you can imagine the storytelling that goes on yeah. uh, when, so, when you fill in that. Yeah, I struggle with that one because one of the questions is, you know, are you protecting Australia's borders right. and studying the Big Bang? No matter how I twist the story, it never works. Yeah, although when I was out at Parks, it was interesting. They were talking about this constant need to justify blue sky science, what they talked about. And they were saying that they learnt to do things like talk about, you know, the invention of the mobile phone, like when you discovered that... You radiation and yeah. whatever it created, that they tried to bring it back to... Because, you know, the taxi driver I was uh, that took me out to, to um, Parks was like, oh, yeah, but what are they really doing? You know, the, the usual <laughs> sort of thing. And I said, well, you wouldn't have a mobile phone without what they had discovered. They, they, did, they weren't looking for that, but that's come out of that science. So I think it's kind of interesting for scientists, you know, to, to get used used to finding that connection back to something and but yeah always blue sky science you know is it, the the thrill of discovery and you know I, I think you could tell a great story about that you know just the beauty of finding new things still in if, the world if when i was talking about fundamental yeah. story structure the whole point of a story is you don't know how it's going to end you know i mean you so uh, i mean you the author might have an idea how it's going to end but the audience doesn't know how it's going to end and so yeah, a good story doesn't necessarily have a... I'm not sure if I agree end. with that, John. I feel like, you know, with a, with a movie, a screenplay in particular, you know, I feel like you know exactly how it's going to end. You just don't know how you're going to get there. So, you know, if it's a, you know, if it's a romance, you know that, the, yeah. you know, the couple are going to get together. Or if it's a, you know, a mystery thing, you know. They might not. They might not, but, you know, you're pretty sure. But the two questions are how they're going to get there. And I feel like, you know, so, you know, I'm not sure if that's exactly true about not knowing how it's going to end, but. Yeah, I'm just trying to, I'm thinking now of all the friends I know who are scientists and writing kind of grant papers and, uh, and, yeah. and the idea that they might write the first page going, and we've got no ideas where this will take us. Yeah, that's the yeah. yeah, story has to really somehow bad project okay, the ending, yeah. and it's yeah. a real struggle with writing yeah, yeah, an application, yeah, yeah. is yeah. that you've got to sort of say, well, this is my hypothesis, but you have to allow that, you know, you, you're, you don't, haven't decided that that's the case already, right? Yeah. That's the yeah, big yeah. thing that you don't want to be doing. Uh, were you going to say something on that? No, I was going to... Well, there's a couple of things. Number one is, is that there is a certain group of people that uh, definitely do not like blue sky science, and that's the politicians. Yeah. Right? Oh, they, yeah. Wa they, they want your science to have an outcome, and that's the next widget that's mm. going to make this much money. But they want that from the arts as well. They, <laughs> they always want to say to us, but what do you achieve? And yeah. it's kind of like, well, there's... I could tell you hundreds of things quality of life, beauty of, 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 of so many things. But we're, we're being asked to justify those sorts of things as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the current ARC grant now has boxes where you list the outcomes mm. and they will go back after you've been funded and run your project and if you haven't met those outcomes, you don't get any more money. Well, then right. there's more storytelling to, yeah. to, yeah. to show yeah. that you've done that. Yeah. So mm -hmm. let's move to another question. I think who, someone up the shop there, yeah. Hi, um, Garant, you, you spoke about scientific literacy and how important that is. And I'm wondering how, Alana, what you do, how that might impact scientific literacy uh, in subtle ways. 
Yeah, thank you, Tona. I, I, look, I hope that's the case. I think that if you can get writers to go into communities of scientists and really write accurately about what they do, um, then people start to actually engage with the, the science in a way that is, is so exciting. And it really just provides a, a, like a little gate into it. You know, it's not like... Because not everybody does need to know, you know, how the background radiation of the universe works to make yes, them over. No, <laughs> but they need to know that science is important, mm. just as the arts are important. They need to know that there are people, so many fantastic Australians. I mean, you know... Australian astro astronomy punches so far above its global weight, and we give so little credit to that. You know, and I got that from <laughs> from going out to parks and talking to these people. So, you know, I, I sort of see myself as this sort of vessel through which these amazing people can be kind of valorised, and people do become excited once they think they know a little bit. I mean, you know, the theatre is this this. Thing where people come out thinking they know about something and so then they have a, a, a great attitude towards it, don't they? You know, they don't need to know everything. They don't need to be real scientists. But, but it's just this idea of inspiring people with what's wonderful about the work you do. And that's what I'm constantly exposed to. I mean, scientists, they're funny, they're sharp, they're competitive. <laughs> they're, so, no, they're so bitchy. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. <laughs> They, they sort of like compete with each other in these incredible ways. And so I'm just like loving, you know, um, writing about them, really. <laughs> I think one thing about scientists is we like to eat a lot of cake. I yeah, had, what, yeah, at one yeah, of our meetings, I, um, I bought cake for the team. I was the only person that ate it. <laughs> these people are not scientists, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, I think there's a point about scientific literacy that, that's, that, that could be interesting here. I mean, the question about... Um, how, you know, what people actually do, you know, the, in, in the scientific method and so forth that so often gets left out. I feel like there might be um, a sort of failure of imagination potentially, you know, that it's quite yeah. possible, I think, to tell stories about that part of the science. So I'm reminded of a, of a lecture that took place here a year or two ago by Elizabeth Loftus, who's a huge personality in psychology, works on memory, um, uh, uh, it does incredible work on memory and how memory is, is uh, easily destroyed by distraction and all this kind of thing. She told this uh, incredible stories over and over again about how this works. And um, a scientist colleague of mine at the end of the lecture said to me, um, you know, I was a bit disappointed because she didn't go into the ins and outs of the actual experiments. She just went through the findings and the kinds of stories. And I thought about it after the th my first reaction was, yeah, well, you know, who, who needs that? But then later I thought, well, yeah, actually, why not? If you, you, if you could tell stories that were compelling about that part of the work, then, you know, they might be compelling and they would also um, add to this, this, you know, need for, for increasing scientific literacy so that people come out actually understanding how, you know, an experiment works, for example, or what the principle of falsification is or what have you. So we had another question, I'm sure. Where's, uh, where's the mic? Thanks. Uh, my question is about what role storytelling can play in cultivating the next generation of uh, scientists. So kids these days are distracted by anything from Facebook, Twitter, or many other distractions. So what role storytelling can play in encouraging high school kids to go into STEM-based uh, STEM 
degrees or uh, students in colleges going to PhD programs and doing further research. I think that that's something that really worries me, actually, because I know that the rate of uptake of science subjects at the HSC level is dropping. Um, there are a few reasons why that is. I think part of it is that students um, are increasingly aiming at a score as opposed to a skill set that they need. So I know that amongst girls in particular, science is dropping. Girls sometimes drop maths. And this is a real concern. Um, I, look, I think a lot of kids are born scientists. You only look, need to look at little kids and how they explore the world. They are all scientists. Um, I'd say that one of, the, one of my enemies um, in terms of the next generation of scientists, this is a bit controversial, is parents. <laughs> parents often think about a career for their kids that's going to be safe. You know, so they encourage their kids to do things like finance and, and, and safe things. And look, the safe road is, is fine, but, but I, sometimes I, I see or hear about kids that they really want to do science and they're not, they're not supported in that. Now, we need the people that want to do science to have that opportunity and we need to be encouraging people to just have a go and do something, do something risky. You know, it may not work, but if you love science, I can honestly say it's a fantastic career. And, I think um, and we need to tell those stories and I think encourage people to, to do the hard thing. To my mind, I think this is one of the most powerful applications of the sort of person-oriented science story, right? So this is the one where we've sort of said you focus on the person, you know, the Marjorie Rice or, you know, all the other scientists, and you're de detracting from the actual science itself. But in a way, I think those could, can be some of the, the... One of the best effects of those kinds of stories is that they make you want to get involved. Um, you know, I know with the downsides that you pointed to um, that maybe science isn't that way, but that certainly, you know, gets you in, into that. Did you want to...? I just wanted to add, well, I, I, to what was just said there, I think part of the problem, uh, and again, not attacking anyone in particular, is having children just gone through the HSC. Uh, the HSC does not give a portrayal of what science is, right? It's, it's handing out facts. And there, there are no real stories in there. It's science is a, a list of facts. And where do children see scientists? Where are, where are scientists on TV or in the news? The only time you really hear about scientists is either the, the flashy part at the end of the news or something to do with climate science. <laughs> so there has to be an overall change in how science is seen in the country. I think if you want to change the, the next generation to be interested in doing science... No, that's, that's all, it's all struck me as completely bonkers that we have uh, five minutes of the news with finance at the end of every night when you're just getting a list of share prices rather than statistics that actually matter, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, that's something we could easily change, just get the ABC to do at least one night a week, show us, uh, you know, um, instead of financial statistics, give us, uh, you know carbon dioxide levels and sort of amount of forest <laughs> remaining and land clearance and yeah, yeah. All right, well, um, I know we've got a lot more people who would like to ask questions, but now we really are um, at the end of our time, so what we're going to do um, is finish there, but... Um, oh. Are you giving? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. all down the front. has been down the front here. It's Testing. Really okay. You're on. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to speak. Yes, when the Higgs boson was announced in uh, 2012, I created a dance routine where the dancers were elementary particles interacting according to the laws of physics. And this was performed in the Mardi Gras in 2013. Good so idea. I think I saw plenty of opportunity for um, 
performances to illustrate real physics. I agree with Durant that it, the performance doesn't replace the science, but it can illustrate the science. And I think there are a lot of people watching that Mardi Gras who uh, would have seen some elementary particle physics which they would never have been exposed <laughs> to before. <laughs> And my next project is gravitational waves. So if anyone would like to join with me on that, thank you. <laughs> Fantastic. All right, well, um, thank you um, very much to our distinguished panel and um, to all of you for coming along and uh, asking your questions. I've certainly um, learned a lot. My sense is that um, storytelling is not bad for science, but um, we had better be careful with it because it is a powerful and potentially uh, dangerous thing. Uh, so thank you all and good night. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.